Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Podcast, and we have another round table with yours truly, Steve Hall, and Dave McCroney of Brains for Gains, and this is part two of this round table discussion, and in this part, we talk about metabolite training, the difference between getting strong and getting big, and how that impacts our training, and what it means to get big and strong over the course of somebody's training career, and the relationship between both. And we also talk about training in a deficit, how we should set up our program and the objectives when we are training for the goal of fat loss. In part one of uh, this roundtable discussion over on Dave's channel, which is linked in the description box below, we talk about exercise selection for hypertrophy, setting volume, progressing the stimulus to grow, and putting things into perspective. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please like, share, and be sure to watch part one on Dave's channel before getting into this one. And here we are for another installment of The Roundtable with Jacob Skeppis, Dave McCroney, and Steve Hall. So do you guys factor in, you know, I think we all agree on this increase in load over time and, and getting stronger. Um, but when you do look at like powerlifters versus um, bodybuilders, you know, certainly they have a higher strength to weight ratio. Um, and you can look at like the specific tension of the muscle and, and see that it is quite different for bodybuilders versus powerlifters versus, you know, the general public. Um, and so I was going to bring up uh, metabolite training in general. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever talked with Scott Stevenson, Jacob. I know, um, Steve, you're pretty familiar with him. Um, but, you know, in his fortitude training, he has these pump days. And basically the whole idea behind it is metabolite training. Um, and, you know, if you asked me even like five years ago, I would have said, eh, it doesn't really matter. Just get stronger. Um, but, like I said, when you look at the different specific tensions of bodybuilder, bodybuilders versus powerlifters, um, there seems to be something to it. And, you know, you could also talk about different types of hypertrophy, sarcoplasmic versus myofibular. But um, do you guys incorporate it at all? Do you think it, it's worth it? I haven't personally tried blood flow restriction. I'd like to at some point. Um, I don't think it's one of the things that you need to focus on. But, to... <laughs> uh, but, but how do you guys <laughs> feel about it? Do you, do you incorporate it with yourself or with clients much? Steve's fancier than I am. Off you go, Steve. So... Have at it. I just want to say one point on it was interesting hearing about kind of the big guys who are really strong as well. I just want to remind people that it's not necessarily how they train now that got them to where they are. It's almost like part of the anabolic resistance that builds up is they're so fucking strong. It builds so much fatigue. They can't do sufficient volume. It's kind of like ugh, everything's mm -hmm. acting against you as you get more advanced everything adapts and resists you can't grow bigger and one of the factors will be because you're stronger you fatigue yourself more so there could be like people that's why you see guys they're pre-fatigued muscles so that they can accumulate more volume yeah. because they're now weaker like in their quads after doing like a leg extension they come into a squat so that's like something a lot of more advanced guys do we obviously don't want to do that initially because that'd be kind of a wasting a lot of time because it's not very effective so it's just something to remember because a lot of people will look up they kind of look at the peak of the, the iceberg and they forget all of the underneath that is actually kind of the foundation that's got them to where they are so as long as people take a principled base approach and they remember everything and they're like oh okay now I understand how why he trains like that and it's not because he has to he has to train like that to try and grow whereas previous methods wouldn't have worked whereas they were better for him when he could do them I guess is what I'm trying to say there um, but in terms of metabolite work so I do use this now and then uh, for most of my clients is something I thread in as a kind of 
kitchen sink of hypertrophy if you're going to put it as anything. And I do think too many people do kind of differentiate between like, they're like, okay, the, the pathways to hypertrophy are mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and uh, wait, metabolic stress. Why have I forgotten the last one? Muscle damage. Cell swelling. Have I said cell swelling? Muscle damage. Sorry. There you go. So muscle damage, mechanical muscle tension. Damage. Muscle damage, cell swelling, and mechanical tension. And people are like, okay, this is my mechanical tension day. This is my cell swelling day. This is like my muscle damage day or whatever it might be. It's kind of like, well, these don't just happen. You can't isolate them. That You're getting metabolite buildup when you're doing your heavy work as well. It's just maybe not as much. So it's just something to remember that they're all kind of acting. So when you have a full pump day, it's not like there's no tension or there's nothing else. You're just focusing on kind of building up tension. And when you're doing your heavy squats, you're still probably going to get somewhat of a pump, some metabolite buildup, some cell swell, 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 cell swelling. <laughs> Jeez, that's a horrible word. <laughs> swell swelling. Swell, swell, swell. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> It does appear to be a lesser priority in terms of hypertrophy. So I'd never like to see someone do like a whole um, block of mesocycle focusing on kind of just getting a pump the entire time. I think that's probably yeah, yeah. a poor efficiency for hypertrophy unless they're injured or something and they can't do anything but pump training, which would kind of suck. Uh, yeah. I find it can be a nice like addition to the end of a session. It's really acutely fatiguing, so I wouldn't put it at the beginning of a session or like in the middle of a session because you'll find you just get wiped. So if you're trying to do like a superset of a lunge into like a leg press, your quads are wrecked. And then you try and go into anything else, you're like, no, I'm done. So I'd always put it at the end. Again, that prioritizes it in terms of you get your more mechanical tension work done, if you want to call it that, and then come to this at the end of the session. And I thread it in maybe every two to four mesocycles as something I'd, as additional to the work you're doing. And I wouldn't kind of add everything. Maybe if you have like a leg day, you do like a quad metabolite giant set or something like that. You don't do everything in that session, like calves, abs, everything metabolite. I think that would wipe you out as well. So you just kind of do one, I tag it along to the end of sessions and I wouldn't ever make it the main focus. And I tag it in every two to four mesocycles for hypertrophy. And the reason I don't use it consistently is because I just find people get really adept, adapt to it. So in terms mm -hmm. of the repeated bout effect that J Jacob talked about, I just find people like w whatever got you pumped in week one won't get you the same pump in week two, week three, week four. It just, you tend to adapt to it really quick. So I end up like maybe you do a giant set of 40 and then it needs to go to 50 to 60. And then you're at 70 and you're like, this seems really unreasonable for the amount of pump I'm getting. So then I cycle it out for a period of time, focus more on the mechanical tension. I definitely would say if anyone new and more novice is listening to this, I'd say, maybe don't even do it yet and really mm -hmm. use it later because it's certainly not going to get the foundation of growth and it's something i definitely don't prioritize it's just something as like a more maybe you could call it as a bit of a more advanced tool to use now and then yeah yeah so i think steve uh, brought up a lot of really good points um and the use of metabolite training is like quite popular and i think it's one of those uh strategies that is more so done in the vein of hey let's make sure that we're not missing out on anything here because you know when we lift heavy weights for example yeah we can feel the tension it's hard uh all those sorts of things but when, when we train with you know higher rep ranges we get massive pumps and all that cell swelling uh we can feel acutely 
uh, that something's happening. And I think a lot of people uh, use it just more so uh, with the fear of, hey, if I don't feel this uh, swelling, that I might be missing out. Uh, but that aside, I think obviously, uh, you know, looking at the research, there is some literature that supports, uh, you know, the idea of getting a pump and having the cell swell. Uh, tongue twister there, hey Steve. Um, and it's it's a, definitely a viable strategy. Um, but again, when we look to what causes muscle to grow and what we know with you know quite a high degree of certainty at this stage, it is the mechanical tension. So I think tension should be uh, the focus for the most part. Um, you know because you know the mechanic mechanico receptors. There's another tongue twister. Are sensitive to both the magnitude and duration of loading uh, and. You know, we get the impo impose force demand that leads to all the motor units uh, being recruited. We get cross bridging uh, within the active fibers. Force is generated. Tension is on the fiber. We get mechanical transduction, myofibrillar protein synthesis increase, and voila, we get muscle growth. Now, when it comes to metabolic stress, so the the cell swelling, uh, you know, this is the exercise induced you know accumulation of metabolites, so lactate, inorganic phosphate, hydrogen ions, and occurs when like anaerobic glycolysis. Uh, is the primary source of energy production, right? So it's worth noting that cellular anabolic signaling effects appear to be similar between high and low reps, like Steve uh, said. So there might not be a unique benefit to high rep training for growth. Uh, definitely practical considerations, uh, you know, in this sense, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the proposed mechanisms are that it does increase fiber recruitment. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah there might be some elevated hormonal response, like altered myokine production, accumulation of ROS, cell swelling, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the way I like to use... Uh, metabolic stress because there is just a lack of certainty around its contribution to muscle growth is to limit the duration and frequency uh, that I'll have someone train with, you know, really high rep stuff. And I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Isratel's uh, progression model over the course of mesocycles. So, you know, one or two mesocycles where we're spending, you know, the 50% of our time in the five to 10 rep range, uh, then in the subsequent two mesocycles, uh, in the 10 to 20 rep range for the most part, and then maybe one mesocycle for, you know, 20 to 30 rep range. Um, and that might be a shorter mesocycle. So anywhere from, you know, three to four weeks instead of your typical, you know, say four to six weeks uh, in the other mesocycles. And Again, I just like to use this more so to minimize monotony and strain uh, for the most part because when we do the same thing over and over, people not only uh, get bored of it, but they generally start to see uh, plateaus in their performance and variation is a, is a very important uh, principle of resistance training that often gets uh, confined to exercise selection, uh, funnily enough. So people will obviously think about variation in the sense of how they can alter the exercises they use. But I think variation in uh, rep ranges and loading zones is equally important, uh, especially for you know, longevity and sustainability, injury prevention, those sorts of things. And like I mentioned, just enjoyment of training. So... I incorporate it more so from the perspective of let's keep things fun and interesting. This is definitely not going to hamper hypertrophy. We don't know with 100% certainty whether it's going to, you know, massively improve your growth, uh, you know, in the short term anyway. Uh, but it's definitely a viable way to offset some of the boredom and just, uh, you know, fatigue associated with lifting heavy and hard in lower end rep ranges for the most part. So, yeah, that's my, my thoughts on that. 
Awesome. Yeah. I and mean, again, a lot of this stuff, um, you know, you, you don't want to miss the what is it, forest for the trees and all that. But um, I think at the end of the day, like, yes, bodybuilders obviously train very different than powerlifters. Um, there's a reason behind it. Um, but I think we'd all still agree, you know, over time, the, the biggest guys are doing the strongest or the, the heaviest lifts for reps. You know, you mentioned before, you're not necessarily focusing on your one rep max. Um, I think you can actually get quite a lot stronger on a one rep max without actually gaining much muscle at all. Um, but and then there was even the study that Greg Knuckles was talking about recently that um, there actually was a, a pretty strong correlation when they looked at muscle mass. Yes. They could determine almost precisely like how much somebody's squat was, I think is what it was. Right. Um, Just some anecdote and, on that, Dave. Sorry to cut you off, yeah, man. Yeah, but ahead. you know, like recently at uh, in Australia, uh, we have had at JPS a lot of success with our male body uh, powerlifting team. Uh, you know, we have pretty much every weight class from sixty-two to sixty-nine, seventy-seven, and eighty-five. So in the four, like you know, light to moderate weight classes. Uh, we have lifters in the top top ten in the country, um, and all of these guys come from a background of bodybuilding. So just to reiterate the point uh, that Steve brought up earlier about how the really strong guys, uh, you know, generally did something very different uh, in the early days of their training that allowed them to be strong. That uh, that transition to you know strength training. Uh, was enhanced by building a lot of muscle initially. So yes, their training was generally very different. And I can speak to all of the cases that I'm referring to. So we have, uh, you know, a guy called Pearson So in the 62s. He was a competitive bodybuilder three or four years ago. We have Carl DeFalco in the 69 kilo class. He was, uh, you know, doing a lot of power, uh, bodybuilding training for many, many years in the bodybuilding gym before he transitioned to powerlifting. My brother Sam in the 77 kilo class. So Carl and Sam are the number one in the country, um, you know, by a long shot as well, uh, might I add. Uh, Sam did bodybuilding training for the better part of five to six years before he transitioned to powerlifting. And then myself, you know, I just snuck into the top 10 in the country with my last meet, which wasn't even, you know, a great performance, um, you know, and I came second at nationals two years ago, and that was on the back end of a lot of bodybuilding training. So getting big, uh, you know, allows people to get strong, um, you know, and I guess just so people don't confuse uh, the, the strong powerlifters for, uh, you know, incorporating programs now that make them look the way they do. Uh, they generally did a lot of bodybuilding training, you know, higher volumes, uh, you know, focusing on relative intensity, not absolute intensity for the most part. And they did that for a lot of years, got big, and now they've just got the muscle mass, which allows them to express, uh, you know, a high degree of strength. So, yeah. So I'm just muting a bit my dog's barking. Um, so let me ask you actually like, the opposite then. Because something I, I've heard, you know, a lot of people said for a long time that I, I've always kind of questioned this, but people would say, well, you should focus on getting really strong, too, in the lower rep ranges, because that will allow you to lift heavier in like the higher rep ranges. But to me, um, sorry, um, to me, I'm like, you know, we talk about specificity of training. And yes, of course, the lower rep ranges will allow you to get stronger in the lower rep ranges and even in the higher rep ranges, too. But are they going to get you stronger in the higher rep ranges than just lifting in the higher rep ranges would? And, and I don't know if there's really any good data on that. Um, I think actually they talked about something recently um, related in a, a mass um, series. But 
again, I, I agree that, yes, if your three rep max gets a lot stronger, you'll probably be able to lift more for 10, but you probably could have also just spent that time training in the 10. Now, I'm not saying only train in one rep range, but I just don't know if that logic necessarily makes the most sense to me. Can I yeah. jump in on this? Go yeah. for Steve. Cool. So uh, I think it's really interesting because this is something I used to think. I even wrote an article about kind of training periodization. I was kind of like, okay, so the bigger the base, the bigger the foundation, the higher the peak in that if you build more strength, then yeah, you can use heavier loads in higher repetition ranges. So therefore that's going to produce more mechanical tension and more growth. And I think that was even something that Brad Schoenfeld, um, 3DMJ, would have agreed with, I don't know, four or five years ago now, whereas I think their opinions changed now. And my opinion got changed when Mike then spoke to me about it a little bit, and he introduced the idea of, okay, these guys are now really strong, so actually now they're producing so much fatigue in those higher repetition ranges. Is that now countering the amount of volume they can do, and have they hampered growth potentially in that way? And so I don't think, like you said, there's not good data to suggest that either which way is right or wrong. But there's certainly some theoretical things to think about in terms of the stimulus to fatigue ratio in that if you're so strong, then you're potentially going to hamper your volume. And I at least know it anecdotally of some guys who were powerlifters first. So rather than the way Jacob talked about it, they were kind of training as a powerlifter initially, got quite strong for their kind of body weight and size. And one of those people would be Pascal. And he's now quite strong in some areas maybe similar strength to me or even more actually in his pressing movements yet i'm more developed in terms of muscle mass than him and his strength may well be hampering his ability to actually produce volume and work and output to initiate growth so i think it's actually potentially counter to the goal if you get really strong especially as you are more advanced especially maybe as a more basic kind of novice trainee it's not such a big deal but you essentially i don't think it's advantageous um at least nothing to indicate that at the moment as far as i'm concerned mm -hmm. yeah i i'm not 100 percent sure what the best direction uh to transition somebody's uh adaptive focus for lack of a better term uh, over the course of their career is whether it's to get strong first and then big and then strong after that or you know whatever the case may be or to get big first then strong um because i i just don't think that there's uh, there's some potential theories behind it like i'm sure uh you know mike has discussed with you steve and and what you're reiterating now um but for the most part you know studies just can't be conducted over the time scales uh that we would need to assess that and have you know any form of uh, assessment of the optimal, uh, you know, approach in that sense. But I definitely think initially people should be focusing on building a base level of strength, uh, you know, and I think that that's a pretty well established idea in, uh, you know, a lot of uh, coaching circles. You, you don't want to just focus on, you know, adding volume, for example, when you have, you know, a rank beginner. It's like they need to put weight on the bar. They need to get to a certain level of strength. Um, but whether you, your focus is primarily on, uh, you know, software adaptations, so the neurological stuff, so motor activation and control, uh, and the adaptations which accommodate and maximally express uh, morphological adaptations, I think if you prioritize that first, uh, you reach a point where you do become limited in not only your strength, but there's also this uh, concomitant effect 
of your necessity for greater absolute loading on lifts that you get stronger with to build muscle, like Steve uh, mentioned earlier. And that could definitely, um, you know, have an impact on, you know, joint integrity, uh, obviously, like, you know, just really pragmatic stuff, like how long it takes somebody to, to train. Like, I know that if I squat now, for me to do a three by five, uh, for example, at an RP of, you know, like seven, uh, I have to use 200 kgs. And that takes me like 30 minutes to warm up to that. Uh, whereas, and de there's definitely ways that I can, you know, achieve a similar training effect uh, with uh, different exercise and all those sorts of things. But, you know, getting strong comes with a cost, um, you know, and time, I think, is one that is often overlooked, uh, as well as the, the con connective tissue and, and joints uh, as well. So, yeah, I think people just need to remember that the bigger the muscle is, like I discussed earlier in the adaptive uh, process of, you know, getting attention stimulus, uh, the more force it can express. So, Anyone who's looking to get strong, you know, a bit of a side uh, tangent, uh, it's probably a good idea to focus on hardware adaptation. So the morphological stuff, so the changes within the muscle tendon unit. So you know, getting bigger muscles, uh, the architecture of the muscle, and then connective tissue adaptation. So uh, yeah, we need to understand that you know, bigger muscle uh, can move more weight, and that might mean that your sessions take longer, but you know, for the most part, I'm not sure which direction uh, is going to be best over the course of someone's training career. Uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, get strong, get big, then strong, whatever your priorities are. And I think there's just a lot of psychological uh, and adherence uh, and sustainability considerations that muddy somebody's ability to really map out, uh, you know, how we go about that over the long term. But for the most part, uh, I think it's a good idea to get both, that is to learn how to motor, uh, sorry, to activate and control, uh, you know, the motor units, the neurological stuff, I think that's good because it means your technique's on point and they can move with a high degree of proficiency and that's gonna allow you to stimulate the muscles appropriately without getting hurt. Um, but I also think that we need to get big. And from my experience, uh, you know, anyone who wants to be strong uh, should be looking pretty big because strong looks strong. Um, and yeah, I guess for the most part at this stage, whether you do uh, the hypertrophy work first and then focus on uh, getting strong uh, versus the neural stuff and then the morphological stuff, uh, you know, being the focus, it's it's a guessing game, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of this with a lot of, I guess, what we talk about, it's kind of like mental masturbation. Like, does it really matter, like, the exact order and whatnot? But uh, Just stay in I the remember... gym and train hard, motherfuckers. That's it. You don't have to listen to any more podcasts. That's, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this happens every time. We've ticked over 12 o'clock uh, a.m. over here, and I start just swearing. doesn't give a shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so something, though, kind of going in line with that, I remember, you know, when I was a teenager and I was on the forums, and, you know, people were just like, oh, like, you're... If, you know, actually, like six months ago. So people were just telling me, you know, you're thinking too much, um, just, just lift. But I do find it interesting to kind of speculate on these things. And, and one of the questions, again, this was, I don't know, maybe eight years ago now, um, where I was saying, would it make sense to not try to gain as much strength during a cut? Now, I don't necessarily agree with this now, but the way my mind was thinking at the time was, you know, if you can only gain a certain amount of strength, should you try to gain that strength when you're in a surplus to get the most hypertrophic adaptation to it? Now, now in reality, really to the ways, bro. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and reality is you're not even going to, you know, past a certain beginner stage, you're really not even going to gain strength during a, a cut anyway. But let's say during those, like, first two years when maybe that's still possible, um, I was thinking, like, well, would it make sense to, like, if you're gaining strength while in a deficit, are you almost, like, wasting the strength gains because you're not going to be able to grow from it? My guess is later your body would just catch up once you were in a surplus. You know, you're then using those higher volume loads. Um, but that, that's all just to say that I think a lot of this can get into the details um, and also kind of transitions into what we were saying before we started recording. Um, you know, Jacob, you've done a lot of work recently in, uh, you know, dieting and how you would train during a diet and managing fatigue. So if you want to touch on that at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, to speak to the first point of whether it's beneficial to focus on strength progression uh, in hypercaloric conditions, so when somebody's at an energy deficit, I would be inclined to say no because uh, there's a number of uh, physiological changes that occur when we start restricting energy intake and we don't have uh, sufficient uh, you know, means to uh, support uh, muscle growth. Uh, obviously, being in a prolonged calorie deficit uh, has a number of potential implications to various degrees, but you know, most specifically is muscle loss. And muscle protein breakdown uh, can often exceed protein synthesis, uh, primarily due to a reduction uh, in you know, the stimulus uh, that we have in training. So people generally get weaker when they restrict calories. Um, but we also have dampened recovery abilities because we just don't have uh, the resources available through diet uh, to support recovery and then adaptation. So I can see an argument for focusing on neurological adaptations uh, in a cut because uh, you know we don't need a as much energy to uh, express force as what we do to uh, build new protein tissue that requires you know isocaloric uh, dieting you know in some rare situations, uh, but for the most part, hypercaloric dieting. Um, but performance can be uh, impaired, especially when somebody's dieting for long durations uh, with high magnitudes of you know, caloric restriction. So if they're eating well below their maintenance calories, seeing a pretty fast uh, rate of loss on the scale, uh, or they've lost a significant amount of body mass relative to their starting weight. So those kind of factors can play a role in somebody's uh, you know, ability to uh, express strength. Um, and not to mention that we have, you know, a number of other, yeah, I won't say significant, but uh, changes that can impact somebody's strength potential. So if somebody loses a lot of weight, they simply don't have, you know, the robust physique that they once had, you know, shouldering the muscle, uh, shouldering the weight, sorry. And that and that can play a big role in the mechanics. Um, you know, it, it's a bit of a contentious topic, but I can speak from anecdote. When when I lose, uh, you know, five or six kgs, and I get sub eighty kilos. My strength on the squat, for example, uh, takes a massive hit and it just feels really, really fucking different. And you know what? It generally takes me a good month at that body weight, uh, provided I don't lose weight. So if I maintain around 79, 80 kgs, it'll take me a month to start to feel like my squats, uh, you know, back to where it is technically. Uh, so if somebody's doing a cut for, say, eight weeks and they want to focus on strength and they're, they're pretty aggressive with it because it's a really short duration, uh, they lose a bit of, you know, quite a bit of body fat, uh, things will feel pretty funky. You know, things that, like the bench press, uh, if they lose a bit of fat, 
on their chest, they're going to increase the range of motion uh, on their bench press, uh, you know, maybe by a millimeter, but that can play out, you know, a lot in terms of the absolute weight they have on the bar because the range of motion is increased and there's a deficit in their strength in that new range of motion. And we see this a lot in powerlifters. So the powerlifters I coach, uh, you know, if my female athletes cut, you know, anywhere from three to five percent of body weight going into a meet, uh, I generally have to reduce their uh, attempt selection by anywhere from two to five percent on their bench press because they just don't have the strength in that new range of motion that they have to press through. Uh, it has less of an effect on uh, you know multi-joint uh, movements for the lower body, but it, again, it depends on how much weight someone loses. So I think if somebody just focuses on strength, at least uh, during a cutting phase that is rather short and aggressive, I don't see that to be a very uh, efficacious endeavor. I think that there'll be probably more uh, drawbacks than there are benefits. Uh, I think trying to increase uh, muscle protein synthesis through training with uh, sufficient volumes and getting a, a decent amount of stimulus in uh, will be a much better endeavor to ensure that not only uh, you know they're looking better whilst they're cutting because generally that's why you cut unless you're a weight restricted strength athlete, um, but it will mean that uh, you know they're able to train in a way that not only facilitates retention of muscle but is also uh, not setting them up for potential adversities uh, that they're they're not expecting. Um, and when somebody's dieting, it just to you know further this discussion down the track of uh, you know, extreme weight loss circumstances such as bodybuilding, uh, I will generally start to bring people into higher rep ranges uh, because their joint uh, integrity becomes impaired the leaner they get uh, and it's a greater risk of injury uh, when somebody's depleted, fatigued, tired, stressed. Uh, you know, so their coordination might be impaired. Uh, and, and I think if you're shouldering uh, really heavy weights, uh, that can be, you know, quite a significant, uh, you know, risk of, of getting hurt. And more importantly, again, back to the pragmatic stuff, uh, somebody's not going to be motivated to put on a bunch of plates on a bar and pick it up off the floor if they're struggling just to get to the gym. If people are in a contest prep, they're really, really lean, getting to the gym is essentially winning the war. To then tell them that, hey, we're gonna do a deadlift and we're gonna hit a top double and you know, at 90% of one rep max, and for this individual, let's say they're decently strong, that's four or five plates. Fucking loading up the bar will kill their motivation. The simple thought of putting that kind of weight on the bar and having to unload those plates, that could be enough of a deterrent that they just are unmotivated to go to the gym. So I think we really need to strip things back when people are dieting. Again, to our physiological objective of training, we need tension, we need sufficient magnitudes and durations. We have a broad spectrum of rep ranges and loading zones that we can train through. Uh, muscle growth and retention is not exercise specific, it's tension dependent. Therefore, we have you know a, a broad, uh, array of tools that we can use in terms of our exercises, uh, the loads that we use, and so forth. So I just don't see uh, the benefit of having a focus on increasing absolute load on the bar when someone's cutting if their goal is you know, to improve their physique. Uh, can they have a, a block where they have lower volumes and uh, you know, there is uh, more of an emphasis on adding weight? than progressing reps or sets, most definitely, because this can uh, reduce fatigue, uh, you know, given that they've been training with higher volumes uh, for a sufficient period of time. Again, it can provide a novel focus for them. Uh, you know, training with high volumes with an emphasis on, uh, you know, building muscle, 
it can get boring at times. So, you know, being able to reduce volume temporarily and say, hey, let's put more weight on the bar and, you know, see if we're stronger. Uh, I think that's a good idea, but it's not the same as saying, hey, let's maximize strength uh, during this cut. It's a very different uh, emphasis. The emphasis is on decreasing volume, providing some novelty and variation in their training, uh, you know, and giving them a, a different objective within that um, mesocycle rather than emphasizing their strength potential. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's my thoughts on that. Steve, any ideas? No, I, I agree. So, good points and i think the saying goes when you're in a deficit diet um when you're dieting train like you're massing like that's kind of the saying but it's you not very nuanced have sayings and analogies i love that <laughs> so well, it's well known come on you know this one <laughs> so but it's not very nuanced like when you're training to cut train like you are trying to grow maximal muscle but that doesn't take into consideration all the things you said about being beat up, kind of being really fatigued, and then you have to consider, okay, so what's going to allow me in the short term to potentially provide sufficient volume and mechanical tension to provide the most beneficial stimulus for hypertrophy? Probably it's not a squat bench deadlift. Probably it's not those higher intensities. It's probably the lighter reps. And this might be where more the pumpy stuff comes in. It allows you to get a bit more volume in, and it's a bit more risk-free and safer and easier to do. Like going in and like you said, doing a five by five when you're kind of a few weeks out from a sh show, that's just, that, that's going to be hell. Whereas going in and doing like a three by 10, that's far more achievable. Um, that's something that someone might look at and be like, I can do that. So I think focusing on maybe more of the, the higher repetition ranges makes sense. Focusing more on kind of machines that feel good, getting away from the movements that necessarily beat you up and not focusing too much on that short term strength loss because it is short term. Like you said, kind of you get to that body weight and you lose that strength, but you can get it back. Uh, it's not something you lose for like forever it, and people need to remember that and by the time you get to the stage again another saying people say is you become less of a performance athlete and more of a physique athlete and you have to focus on what was my physique saying more than like how am I performing in the gym because really it doesn't matter when you get on stage the, the judges aren't going to ask you kind of oh what are you hit thrusting and kind of squatting right now no they're looking at your fucking glutes to make sure they've got lines in them and that's what you care about as a bodybuilder at least so no I, I wholeheartedly agree I think if you end up training for strength when you're in a cutting phase you may well end up cut your volume too short not really gain that much strength and potentially also lose some muscle mass because you just don't have sufficient uh, high enough volumes to maintain the mass you've already got if you do extend that for a long period of time. Yeah, I, I agree with everything both of you said. Um, last time I did a serious cut was about a year and a half ago. Um, and I kind of just wanted to experiment, like how low could I bring the volume? You know, if I, I literally went to, I think like three to five sets per muscle group. I was training like two or three times a week. Um, and I think there's inherently like this fear, like, oh, I'm going to lose muscle if I, I drop the volume. And the thing is, I did lose muscle because I was dieting for months on end, right? Like, it's just almost impossible if you've been doing this long enough that you're going to keep all of your muscle. But if I compare it to previous diets, did I lose any more muscle than I did before? Not really. And, you know, I mean, my volume was less than half of what it was during a bulky phase. I mean, I, I had some pretty short workouts. I just kind of hit what I could. And if anything, you can make the argument that you will hold on to more muscle because you're going to have more recovery 
uh, you're not going to just be like overstimulating yourself um, and kind of like dig yourself into a deficit as far as recovery goes. Um, so, and if, and also kind of Jacob, what you were saying, I mean, there's a psychological aspect to it. If you have to imagine yourself going in and doing this grueling workout, it's almost like, why? Like you're not growing right now. You're not gaining strength. If you can maintain with 10 sets or you can maintain with five sets other than ego, why are you doing the 10 sets? You know, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in that regard. Yeah. And I, I just, I think that a lot of people overestimate how much volume they need to retain muscle, even when dieting. Uh, for example, this is a really extreme case, but I had one of my physique guys last year. His name was Aaron, and he's one of our JPS coaches, uh, very, very uh, proficient lifter. He's been training a long time. It was his first bodybuilding show. Uh, and he was actually competing in physique, so we didn't have the intention of competing in bodybuilding. But he ended up getting so lean, and he had the muscularity in his legs. We said, "Screw it, let's do both, just for shits and giggles, to sort of see which one you like most." Um, but because he set out to train, uh, sorry, to compete in physique, I had him training legs once a week, right? And it got to the end of the the contest prep, and his legs, you know, from what I could see maintained their size and he was training them once a week with about five sets per week and he was you know to the bone shredded like you know for a young kid who you know doesn't have a lot of muscle maturity and you know first time getting stage lean you know we, we know that it's going to be very difficult for someone like that to have a walnut butt you know striations in their glutes and you know just be absolutely dice but the kid had lines in his butts you know his hamstrings you know the, the glute ham tie-in was like he looked phenomenal um, and he trained his legs once a week with you know, anywhere from five to eight uh, sets per session uh, for his quads and hamstrings. And he didn't atrophy uh, you know, in a visual sense. Like I'm sure maybe he lost some tissue, a couple of hundred grams, sure. But in terms of what his quads, his hamstrings, and his glutes look like on stage, uh, yeah, pretty impressive. You know, massive set of wheels. You know, if, if you want to go check him out, uh, the strength student uh, on Instagram, his legs are freaking phenomenal, better than 90% of competitors, uh, you know. So I, I think people really overestimate how much volume they need. Uh, and again, it comes down to the fear of missing out, you know, FOMO. Uh, it, the more I do, it's like a safeguard, uh, but generally it's not needed. Uh, I've definitely seen this, you know, in, in myself, not uh, from a hypertrophy or muscle retention standpoint, uh, but I was training with, around five to six sets uh, for my quads, uh, you know, in my powerlifting meet. Uh, and I was progressing quite linearly uh, in terms of my strength. I hit a PB, uh, multiple PBs actually, uh, both in training and in the competition. And my legs didn't look like they shrunk. Like it, it did not look like, like I was weight stable, um, you know, but my legs didn't freaking turn to these, you know, little, uh, you know, sticks that you would, think they would if you did such low volumes uh so yeah i think you know like uh i keep referring to dr mike but he's the hypertrophy guru uh you know he's outlined that generally five to ten sets uh you know can maintain muscle mass um and yes dieting uh brings about a net uh increase in you know catabolism and we see muscle protein uh, breakdown exceed muscle protein synthesis meaning that we might need you know a little bit more volume to to counteract uh, that shift due to the diet. Uh, but yeah, I think sometimes less is not only uh, okay in retaining muscle, but I think it can just enhance uh, your recovery uh, and allow for some quite sustainable training uh, in a period of time where you're feeling really shit and training is just 
you know, a chore. Like it, it's hard. Like anyone who's been, uh, you know, dick skin lean knows that going into the gym and, you know, doing squats is just not a pleasant endeavor. So if you know that you only have to do, you know, like five sets for your quads, uh, yeah, that's a lot more manageable uh, than having to go in and do like, you know, 12 uh, in a session. And yeah, so that's just some uh, anecdote on that front. My only question there would be for Aaron when he was competing, um, how much of the spike <laughs> whey protein was he taking? Oh, man, he was taking a lot. No, he's only he's only a twenty two year old, uh, completely natural. Been training for like three or four years, so uh, we'll we'll get the JPS uh, spiked whey protein into him in, in a couple of years. Down the uh, road, start to <laughs> his genetic potential. The Jared Feather method. <laughs> um, any closing thoughts on that, Steve? Uh, my only additional thought on that, and I don't, I almost wasn't going to say it because I don't want to put any negative or I, I like the message. I like the message of you could get away with lower volumes than you think, but to play devil's advocate and kind of have this other message, I think there's a genetic component for a lot of people in terms of what they can get away with and how much they need. There's some people to get that dick skin lean, they just lose so much mass overall on their entire physique. I think I'd probably put myself for my legs to get really diced and for my quads to come out. Like I look like I've got a decent pair of quads when I'm like 170 pounds. I get down to like the low 160s. I'm like, where the fuck did my quads go? But there's some lines in there now. So I think there is a genetic component there. But I, I agree with the, especially when you're not dieting, like the amount of volume you need to maintain, oh, it's so little. People could get away with way less. And I think there needs to be times where you do that, where you really, like we said, strategic deconditioning, whatever you want to call it. Like it's, you're not even deconditioning. You're maintaining your muscle mass with a small amount of volume, psychologically, physiologically reset at periods of time. I think it's a wise move uh, for longevity. But yeah, I, I like Jacob's overall message. I just say some people, unfortunately, yeah. might not be able to do that. Yeah, and have and you ever tried it's... just uh, working harder, Steve? <laughs> Stop being a bitch. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally and wholeheartedly agree with Steve on that front. Uh, I think not only is there a genetic component to that, like Aaron had a pretty good base to begin with. Um, you know, coming from Fuck an athletic Aaron. background uh, previously, yeah, screw Aaron. Uh, <laughs> but I also think it's muscle group dependent as well. So just to speak to my example of uh, the previous uh, powerlifting cycles I did where, uh, you know, I was doing very low volume for my quads. Uh, you know, like I said, I think it was anywhere from like, it was stupidly low. It wasn't much. Um, you know, high intensities though. So, you know, the total work was high, just not the set count. Um, but my upper body, uh, in comparison, uh, required nearly double the amount of volume to uh, see that strength progression. Uh, so, yeah, I think not only is there a genetic component to that, um, like Steve started to allude to, I think there's a huge uh, you know, difference between muscle groups. And, and that can stem from uh, genetics, but also I think there's uh, just some muscle groups that tend to, to need more uh, than others to you know, keep the tissue around. And that, that will vary. Uh, you know, from individual to individual, like I'm sure, uh, you know, Steve would probably need a lot less volume to maintain, you know, the size in his chest than he would for his quads uh, when he's, uh, you know, cutting. Uh, as he mentioned, his chest is quite a strong point um, and, and grows, uh, you know, like the weeds, uh, whereas, uh, you know, his legs are like a cactus and just don't seem to grow. They're forever <laughs> small sake. and weak. Uh, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, using that kind of information and just getting a really good handle on your volume requirements uh, to use the uh, RP language, 
the, your volume landmarks. Knowing your volume landmarks, uh, you know, when you're in hypercaloric conditions, uh, can be a really good framework for how much you need and what you can get away with uh, when you're cutting. Awesome, awesome stuff, guys. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, it's one a.m. over here, man. Go to sleep. <laughs> so uh, I think everybody knows at this point, but where can we find more of your stuff? Cool. So uh, we find basically Revive Stronger is all of our stuff. So any social media, find us over there. Uh, apart from Twitter, don't do that. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, JPS, uh, we have multiple accounts now. Uh, we have JPS Health and Fitness on Instagram. We also have JPS Education. If you like uh, overly detailed and complex infographics and you're not a fan of the uh, super basic and, you know, eating a calorie deficit and, you know, this is a good food, this is a bad food uh, type graphic. Um, or you can follow me for a lot of random uh, posts that are mostly non-beneficial to your education and all lifting. Um, Jacob Skepis, uh, S-C-H, like school. But otherwise, yeah, we have YouTube also. Uh, check that out. I do podcasts semi-regularly when I feel like it uh, with who I feel like talking to. Uh, I'm not like Steve Hall and have a backlog of 50 podcasts in the next uh, 12 months. Uh, well, maybe one day um, when I'm uh, living the Steve Hall lifestyle when my kids are all grown up and at school, I might be able to do something along those lines. But for now, you have to bear with me and just listen when you can. 